You're listening to the No Labels, No Limits podcast with best-selling author Sarah Box, where you get the inside scoop on the steps action takers and decision makers take to align their purpose to their principles and achieve their goals in business and life. And now, without further ado, please welcome your commanding coach with plenty of chutzpah and heart, Sarah Box. Hey there, everybody. This is Sarah, your host of the No Labels, No Limits podcast. And I want to thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode. Um, Now, I want to give you a heads up. We have a great guest and I'm going to talk about her in a minute. But if you are listening to this episode between September 2nd and September 15th, two week window only of 2021, you can join in. This episode is actually going to be our 200th episode, um, which is a milestone for us. When we started the podcast, we didn't know. I had a concept of what I wanted to do. I wanted to like help people break through labeling limits, labels, self-labels, limits, labels other people put on us. And then to have guests who could talk to that either directly or through what they've done, like how they overcame things, but basically help open doors and possibilities for people wherever they are in the world. to go after what they want and to trust that they can do it. So if you are listening to this episode to join the contest, let me tell you a little bit about it. All you have to do is pick an episode that you really got something out of, go to our website, um, or there should be a link below also in this, go to our website, there'll be a form, you enter your name and email, then you tell us the episode number, the guest, the person, so today it would be Courtney, Um, And then something specifically you took away or what that guest helped you or how they helped you. Um, And that's it. You submit it. And then on the 16th of September, we're going to use a random number generator. So we're going to pick the top three and then we're going to send gift cards to you via email. So that's it. It's super simple, but it's our way of helping thank our guests as well as to promote the show and get the word out to other people. So if you're listening between those dates, you are in. And um, as I tell you a little bit about our guest today, you're going to understand why she is a perfect guest to kick off our contest with. So um, let me tell you a little bit about Courtney Marchesani. Did I say that right, Courtney? It's a hard CH. So hard, it's okay. Marcassani because it's Italian. Yeah, it's like Keanu. Italian. <laughs> exactly. Okay. I had a think. I'm going, Sarah, you wouldn't say that in Italian like that. And I'm going, okay, maybe I could be wrong. Um, anyway, I was wrong. But Courtney's an award winning integrative health and wellness coach. And she has an extensive background in mental health and social services. And her advocacy and wellness programs really focus on holistic approaches and solutions. Um, and she consults with on projects, she does research, she serves as project managers. Um, and then she really helps people through thinking through sustainable, natural and traditional healing methods so they can get more out of their life and break through their labeling limits. But today we're also gonna talk about, to Courtney about her new book, Um, because she's recently released the four gifts of the highly sensitive. We'll get into the book and um, it's super interesting. And with that, though, let me just welcome Courtney officially to the episode. Hi, Courtney. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be 200. I can't tell you. I'm just 
I'm feeling bubbly and effervescent about that. Thank you. <laughs> I like bubbly and ever effervescent. That's good. Um, so let me ask you a couple of things. One, you know, I asked you before we started if there was something that's been on your mind. And I I think about this because I know sometimes I have a plan or I think this is what we should talk about. But then I wake up and think, I just need to ask this guest something entirely different. And sometimes the guest says, you know, we've got to talk about this. So tell me what is on your mind right now? Well, I was telling you a little bit before we started, but there is this emerging, it's emerging theme. And I've had it before. It's not like it's a new, completely new topic to me, but it's re uh, reemerging, I guess would be a good way to describe it, where it kind of comes up into my attention and um, it takes my attention. And that is um, pressure, you know, pressure and performance and um you know we're we see it all the time in our lives but i think we're going to see it more as the pandemic now kicks into its second phase you know we're going to be required to uh, perform more you know under great duress so i was thinking about how we perform and or don't under extreme circumstances so can you share the little story you told me about going to parents night <laughs> yeah so Last night was parents night. Okay, I first of all forgot about it. <laughs> My son had to prompt me. I mean, I read it in the materials, but yesterday was kind of a day of uh, spontaneity. I got called to do a couple different things last minute and I had to move my schedule around. So I wasn't focused on parent night. Um, so we're all kind of unwinding, decompressing from our day. And he mentions it as an aside. And then my husband and I jump into gear and we're like, we need to go to parents night. So we, we, you know, go and run up the hill to the school. And, um, you know, my son doesn't necessarily care for like the written language or language arts. It's just not his focus. Whereas mine is, I love language arts and English was a favorite of mine in school, but he's never really liked it. So, but he has been taking to French because you get electives. And so he's in seventh grade. So he got electives this year. And, um, you know, he's been speaking a little bit of French at home and I'm just floored. So we get to go and meet the teachers and I walk in to the French room and my son had kind of prompted me that she was going to put us on the spot, the parents, and ask us in French a couple different phrases. And he gave us a couple different phrases to respond to. So already I'm engaged, right? My son's engaged. He's giving me the heads up. And sure enough, I walk into her room and I see why he loves her. She's just easy. She's fun. She's talking to all the parents, you know, bringing them out of their shells. And, um, she said the biggest thing in the first two or three months in this French class is to relax, is just to be calm and be relaxed or otherwise they're not going to learn. And of course, I know that, you know, as a teacher myself, but to experience it from someone like that who just, she didn't let us off the hook. There was still pressure to respond, but it was just that warmth and calm and play. She was all about play. And so that's what really brought this to my mind this morning and how some of these great teachers help us relax so that we can really learn or do our best. It's interesting because when we get tense, I don't, I will speak for myself, my creativity and my ability to flex aren't as good as they typically are. And they're typically pretty good. You know, you could throw a curveball at me. I'm going, Okay, we could work with that. Give me two minutes. Okay, we can do that. Um, but if you're under pressure or stressed, 
I just can feel the lockdown, like what? So I, that's yeah. such a great lesson and how fun for you to just show up that way and have a great time, you know, at a, at a parent teacher night. I know. I mean, the only phrase I know really in French was one that I learned in a movie, but I always remember it, remembered it. My husband, on the other hand, took French. And so he had some phrases and he, he brought out his one, you know, famous French line is, does anyone have a microphone? <laughs> right? So he's taught me how to say it. I can't say it now, of course, because, you know, I'm on the spot. Pressure. But I, I, pre I pressured him in the moment. I was like, say, you know, uh, is there a magna is there a microphone present? And so he goes up and he tells her and so she starts laughing and then she goes into this whole French dialogue where she's like, well, we don't have microphones as much anymore because now everything is on the cell phone and he could understand her. And so I think that it is amazing what's possible when we when we laugh in the moment and we can laugh at ourselves and not feel that. And so her example was just all these seventh and eighth graders are under so much pressure all the time. It's middle school, you know, it's one of the hardest times in their educational, uh, you know, social pressure and other kids, you know, looking at there's just there's a lot of pressure in seventh and eighth grade. It goes without saying. So I thought it was funny that not only she could engage her kids this way, but she could engage the parents, you know, her like another level of like, you know, seriousness about school. And um, and it's so translatable to everything. I mean, sports performance, work performance, speech performance, right, and public speaking. And so I've experienced the complete lockdown, you know, where I'm just frozen up and nothing's happening mentally or emotionally. And I've also experienced the, you know, nail it performance where you hit it. And so it's like, I do believe it's something that we need to be aware of in every facet of our life or how much are we performing and how much are we getting, you know, locked up because that's a terrible feeling to just feel frozen. You know, it's, it's mostly performance anxiety that creates that. Um, but there's a lot of layers. I know that, you know, that. Well, there are. And, um, I think one of the hardest parts is when you're locked up, you know, there's more, it just isn't coming. Right. And so there, <clears throat> I'm living where there's a lot of smoke right now. So it's my voice might go in and out. Um, but but what happens for me, and I know a lot of my colleagues too, is like, you know, there's more there, but you can't tap it as like you normally do. And um, I just love that remembrance on your part to share with us today. Well, now, I do for, have a question. Thanks for inviting me to share it. I probably <laughs> wouldn't have, but because you had that thought process of asking, it, it was able to come out. Nice. I'm trying to check always my intuition over my logic. You know, like I'm, I love having a plan. I like when my plans work out. I do. I can't lie. Um, but I also have learned over the years that if I hear something in my head that says, just ask, just check it out. Um, I usually am happy I did. And this is a great example of it because I wouldn't have gotten your lesson and our listeners wouldn't have gotten your lesson either. So I love that takeaway. But and, I think, and I think it's, Est un magnetophone ici. Est un magnetophone ici. Is there a is there a microphone present? <laughs> I, like I think it. I got it. You know, okay. I always think Let us that. Proceed. Um, <laughs> my biggest thing is I always need to know if it's the minimum thing I need to know is is there a hotel? Is there a bathroom? Bathroom. <laughs> if yes. I know those two things, and, and I've come to find out that the most important is where's coffee? And depending on where you are, <laughs> coffee is pretty well understood, right? You can yes. climb it, do that kind of stuff. Um, yes. 
and it's gotten me far. Una cafe. <laughs> That's my girl. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, we digress, my friend. Okay, let's go. Let's um, go. So, do you have, as a creative person and a writer, do you have a routine that you practice every day that kind of keeps you in sync with that? Yes, and a good segue about the coffee. It has a big, it has a big placeholder in in my morning. But I do. I kind of clear everything away. I try to clear my thoughts away. I sit down quietly after the hustle and the bustle of the morning, and um, and I do create a creative space. And so sometimes I use that space for um, you know one on one level task orientation. But a lot of times it's a kind of like a primer when I make that space to let things come through and so i when i was talking about creativity um you know i look at it as different processes different processes that i cultivate to allow my creativity to come through so yes i definitely use a process sometimes it just comes through spontaneously when i'm feeling connected in the moment with nature or my kids or um you know any other in enjoyable or pleasurable thing that I love to do and I feel immersed in it, then the creativity really comes. Because I think that's when I really feel free, you know, open, receptive, then it really definitely comes. And that's just in the moment. That's not- You have a great way of um, making pictures in my head with how you speak. So I can tell you like language art and you're- I do. <laughs> yeah, I do. I'm sitting I there, I'm, like feeling I'm feeling good. Um, so how- how did you come? I will, I'm tr just was pausing to decide where I wanted to go next. I do want to know about your book. Um, sure. There's a lot of questions I have about your book. So what led you to write that book? And the whole title is Four Gifts of the Highly Sensitive. Embrace the Science of Sensitivity, Heal Anxiety in Relationships, and Connect Deeply. And that title alone, I know, has resonated with a couple of people very close to me. So how did you come to write that? Well, I didn't know that was the book that I wanted to write, but uh, long ago when I was working at a trauma center, a mental health center, um, but it was also a hospital, and so it was integrated with psychiatry, outpatient. I worked on the outpatient end while also doing housing. So I did, um, I was an administrator for 200 units of affordable housing to transition our clients back into the community after they've experience mental health issues. So it was a very big job, multiple uh, roles in one in one job. And um, as a mental health provider, as a clinical provider, I would have I have my own clients and I started to notice that there wasn't enough creativity and healing. I mean, just being a front level worker, I started to see that just in terms of my own opinion, that we weren't doing enough in terms of integrative medicine. But I didn't know the book that I wanted to write was Four Gifts. That kind of unfolded along my own personal journey when I started to recognize um, that I was a sensitive person, but it took me a long time. I didn't know that. I came to it, I call it like back engineering because <laughs> I didn't, I wasn't self-aware enough to recognize that. I mean, I had read Dr. Elaine Aaron's book in the 90s which was the first highly sensitive person book, but I still didn't identify myself. So it came about through a series of events over time, which were what I would call synchronistic, but I would also call really on the end, extreme end of like psychic phenomenon. And I, I wasn't 
I hadn't learned about those kind of anomalous experience. I knew nothing about them. And so I really started to research them in tandem with my work. And then I ended up kind of going that way where I just turned towards the anomalous experiences. And that's why you see the science behind sensitivity, because I felt like when I was ready to write that book, finally, there wasn't enough science explaining the physiological process of these individuals who were really far out in the spectrum. So I really, my passion behind it was to help teach the science behind sensitivity to validate sensitives in their experience so they wouldn't feel alone or isolated in their experience. And that's what so, drew me to writing it. Could you define what a sensitive is and help us understand so that because people can hear that word and say, well, I'm a sensitive person, but you're not speaking just of that. You're speaking much more specifically, right? Right. There's 20% of the population, one in four or one in five that are sensitive, clinically considered a highly sensitive person. And what that entails just briefly is that they have a organic brain function which is related to the way they perceive their environment, any environment they're in. They perceive through a depth function, it's called the depth function, uh, they perceive more. Okay, so sight, sound, taste, touch, the classic five senses, more comes in. They're processing more on the fly. But not only that, the second part of um, being an HSP is the emotional reactivity. Clinically, that's really kind of the um, the identifying factor is that their emotional uh, reactions are much faster. So they perceive more and then they respond faster to what they perceive. And is so that, that response always visible or is it often internalized response? It's, it's mostly internalized. You can see it a lot in children that are responding without um, any kind of filter. You know, they're putting their hands over their ears, they're putting their hands over their eyes because they're just perceiving so much, but they don't know how to convey that with their own language. They also don't understand that they're, um, that they're having a problem. They think they're the only ones that are having the problem. So they don't necessarily articulate what they're experiencing internally. So most of it is external actually. And, and what we see is pretty much, um, you know, the, the overwhelm, the, the, the meltdown, the, you know, the burnout. And so with adults over time, typically we become more resilient to a lot of that. So you see less of the external, but it's, it, it's, it's like a, it's like a raging storm within internally. Uh-huh. So it takes time to figure out you're sensitive or sometimes a parent will recognize their child is sensitive because they're just tuned in and they're paying attention to what's going on. You, you know, it's, it's in those experiences, those odd experiences where they just have no emotional reserve left in the tank to sit in a, a gymnasium full of people or to go through a car wash where, you know, they're frightened and, you know, there's so much coming in. And so parents will tell you, this is the first time I knew when such and such happened. When you get older, it becomes a little bit more complex untangling that, but that's the clinical, that's the clinical definition. Now, I, you're right, I'm going into something more specific which is what I call giftedness. giftedness. Giftedness of sensitivity, which hasn't really been done. This book goes into people that are on more of an extreme spectrum. And then I go into the subtle layers of how that functionality works for them and helps them or is, is not serving them and how they can get it to serve them in their lives through their gifts. Can you share a little bit of that with us, you know, in terms of what are maybe some of the elements of it and, um, 
the implications for us? Like you talked either on the gifted side or the detrimental side? Well, I think that, <clears throat> excuse me, I do think that through my hypothesis with the book is I'm basically like claiming these are the four. Now there's more. There's obviously more, but these were the four that I was able to determine through my research over the past 20 years from, you know, my own experiences kind of inspiring me to start paying attention and researching and digging down into this in a new way. And so the four that I delineated were backed by science. So I went through all the studies on sensitivity and just immersed myself in what was being, what was emerging in the field. And I found that there were subtypes, subtypes that were emerging through the sensitivity research and they were called low sensory threshold, LST, ease of excitation, EOE, and, um, AES, aesthetic sensitivity. And so these qualities, without going into a great amount of detail, were distinctive. So it's people who in low sensory threshold were not able to perceive too much sensory information before they already met their threshold. So we all have an internal threshold of that resiliency of how much we can take in through our senses before we feel maxed out or sensory overload. And so low sensory threshold was something that I twigged onto, um, but so was AES, aesthetic sensitivity. So these individuals I kind of built into a personality type that I call expressives because expressives go into an environment and they use their aesthetic sensitivity to perceive beauty and harmony and patterns. And then they express that through language, writing, painting, art, anything artistic. And so I write about that in the book, how aesthetic sensitivity expresses itself through the personality type. And then I go into the visionary. That's another one of the gifts. And so I looked at multiple fields of research around visual awareness, spatial awareness. I mean, one of the founders of spatial awareness was Howard Gardner. And so he's, you know, he's a big icon of mine because I was reading Howard Gardner's work in multiple intelligences theory when I was researching. And so I pulled from Howard Gardner and I pulled from other luminaries in the field who describe this type of spatial awareness. And then I followed the trends and saw that sensitives who had this type of spatial awareness really did truly become visionary type people through their life experience. So visionary in terms of creating space or visionary in terms of imagining things that don't currently exist and bringing them forth? Both, both. I conceive of it as a mental image field in front of the mind's eye. It's been classically called the mind's eye that the visionary uses in an imaginal space. Yes, it's definitely an imaginal space that they're creating through their own mind's eye. But also the other one that you mentioned, the first one is also included in that and how is and how it's expressed and so i go into it and there's different types of visionaries and then i go into the different types of visionaries because not everybody has their gift work for them in the same way especially with vision because when you look at the way the visual um you know the occipital lobe and everything works when we look at something in the environment and it goes into our visual cortex our visual cortex each of ours is different it's going to put the picture together in different ways which I think is a phenomenal ability of our brain to do that. But it's really predictive. It's a predictive visual um, gift. 
And so when it comes to the visionaries, their predictive visual gift works in different ways. That's the best way to say it. But then I also go into intuition and empathy, which are starting to really hit critical mass right now. And so my opinions about those are very much under the umbrella of sensitivity. And so how it works for gifted sensitives, being an empath and feeling other people's feelings or being intuitive and how that intuitive creative ability works for them. Because intuition and creativity are very closely linked. So that's interesting because um, a couple of things as you were speaking, I was wondering when you think about that, um, the visual will stay there for the moment. Okay. I'm thinking recently about both the achievements of um, Sir Richard Branson and, you know, just the whole space, all that mm-hmm. thing, right? And so here, and he's not the only one, right? We also had, um, I'm blanking right now. Um, Are you talking about uh, Bezos? Bezos. And also um, Elon Musk has been also working in that Bezos. field. Yes. Yep. So you've got this, but you know, what we see at the end is we see the launch, if you will, or we see yep. SpaceX doing, you know, deliveries and stuff. But here are three people as an example who have a vision, they're pursuing it without confidence, I, I don't know, right? There's no thing that says this definitely will work, right? But they're putting something out there, they're following it for a couple of decades before we on the back end see what it looks like, right? So it looks amazing. But I also just wonder what's in the brain of someone who can see that and pursue it, pull the teams together to do it. So I just didn't know if that fell, like if you were to look externally at the behaviors of folks like them, not necessarily them in specific, if they would categorize as you're doing, if you would think they would fall on a sensitive spectrum under one or other of those areas. Definitely. I have looked at them. Not, be- <laughs> not, not Bezos so much, but I have been exploring Richard Branson's perception for yeah, 10 years, pretty much, and following and looking at it and analyzing it. Because one of the things that he uh, that he came to me was through dyslexia. So your your um, podcast is no labels. And so one of the things that um, has always stood out to me is individuals who kind of get labeled right for their um, their disabilities or their or their the differences. Yeah, their inability to do something like language, for example, like reading, right, that is very much a learning, it's a learned, and we all have the capacity for language, our brain developed natural selection made it possible for us to learn languages. But with Richard, Sir Richard Branson, you know, he was very inventive from a young age, and his mom supported that. And I think what you see with him is this inventiveness that comes through in a different way. It's very visual for him. And um, if you tested him, he would probably fail a regular standardized test. But one of the things that I noticed through all my research is that individuals who are extremely bright, sometimes over like 165 in mental intelligence scales, are extremely visually gifted, but a lot of times they have dyslexia it overlaps and so when i look at interesting people like him which is not only the ability to be inventive to see to make these holistic connections but there's also a devotion right Right. you can't just imagine the rocket you have to have this utter passionate devotion to what you're creating which really does set the visionaries apart they can't let it go 
The same thing with Elon Musk. He couldn't let the rocket go, you know? And so he also was probably likely very sensitive, creative kid. And so was Richard Branson. Now, I don't know about Bezos so much, but those two, I can definitely say they're visionaries. There's no doubt. I've looked at their history. I don't think that um, Elon Musk has uh, dyslexia as far as I know, but look at all these people who do, um, you know, from actors to film directors to literary people, people who are uh, who are in the arts. And so you really do see these trends start to happen. And so dyslexia is one of the things that I picked up on because it just started to trend. I started to see these individuals who are very passionate about problem solving, very passionate about their answers for it, even if they didn't know how or why their answers worked. It was a totally intuitive process and how they followed it. And then what we see now right, which is the rocket going, which would we thought would never be possible. So I do think that there's some underpinnings to these types of visionaries. And one of them is they don't give up, they keep going. And usually along the way, they get enough creative solutions to build these companies that they can bring in enough money to keep going. It inspires them or gives them proof or confidence to not give up. That whole persistence thing is, um, sometimes I wonder, Courtney, if people don't persist, and I just, there's that big fear of like, okay, you're only two inches from the, from the next turn, you know, but they can't persist any longer. Right. So they stop. And I think, what would we be missing out on? Or I think about it we, missed, we don't know what we've missed out on because someone stopped short. I think about it too. And why some people have that pressure point where they, they're, they are exhausted, but they keep going. And then there's also the financial part of it. That that's the big part of it. Why you can't give up. Now, some people run out of money, right. For their inventions and their ideas, but think about a kid in college, right. Who's burnt out. They're not doing well. And they have so much invested in student loans. They can't really give up. You know, there's like, there's like, you have this much invested in, you can't give up now. And so I think there's so much that goes into that in terms of the pressure point that we don't know um, why some people decide to divert and take a different tack. Um, but I, the way I look at that process when people do give up is that there is a learning, that failure is not failure in that way, in the traditional way that I think there's always something learned in that process and the uh, decision point when they divert and go into a different direction. I absolutely agree. I mean, and that's also a frame, uh, that's a reframe, right? When yeah. people think they failed, it's like, do you have more information than you did yesterday? Yeah, okay, no failure, you know? We learn so much about ourselves in those moments. We do, and sometimes it's not pretty. <laughs> No, I mean, I, I, I have, have had things that have gone, have not gone well and I had to pull out of, and it was, it was crushing, you know, emotionally crushing, mentally crushing. Um, but I think that's why I can really tune into the reframe is because that's kind of where you, you need to go if you want to rise up and pull yourself up. But that's the essence of what you're talking about. Why can some people do that? Even in the most utter devastating circumstances and others don't. And so I've, that's a, that's an existential question that I've wondered about for years. But you don't have an answer for me? Well, I do think it comes into the nature of the human spirit a little bit. I do. I think it kind of goes into the triumph of the human spirit and how some people can pick themselves up or, or, or find themselves whole or strengthened in a new way where others kind of remain broken and never really kind of 
pick themselves back up or become whole again. So I, I feel like that's when the human spirit comes close to us to help us heal in whatever way we need to heal to keep going. And I, and I also believe that these individuals that we're talking about sometimes do have a purpose. So it's not going to let us go. It, oh, we're, we're, we're not going to be able to run from it. It's in us. It's like that divine spark that we can't hide. It's going to figure keep... it emerges in a different way at a different time. Yeah, with different people and a different scenario. But if you're paying attention and you really are cued into that kind of thing, you'll start to recognize it's a pattern. Yeah, that was a question I had to answer a couple of days ago about myself. And it was like, what are, you know, what are, what are your clues or something? What's the something you've just never let go of? And I'm thinking, yeah, that was so weird. When I first had that desire, right? I didn't know what it meant. And, and, and it was true, like with the name of this podcast, it just the name came to me and I'm thinking, OK, I don't know what I'm going to do with that, but it feels right. So I'm going to just claim it and then figure it out. So, I mean, a lot of that stuff we don't know, but it all when I look a retrospective, like you're saying, they tag to one another and they tell a different they show a path where it goes. I don't know. I know I'm not there. Um but it is also that sense of wonder and curiosity. Now, the divine spirit or that soul spirit you're talking about, does that come in? Do you see that with folks who are um, deeply sensitive folks expressed differently or more connected? I'm not sure the best way to ask a question, but is it does it manifest different for people? Yes. Yes, it does. Absolutely, it does. And I think that the the part of it that I started to twig onto was the way in which people perceive. We all perceive differently. And sometimes some senses are heightened, you know, to different types of feelings, thoughts. And so one of the things that was occurring to me and kind of eddying up when you were talking about yours, you know, is that where our attention is drawn to. So it's not only just our sensory capacity to perceive and how we perceive, but it's also what our attention is drawn to. And that's kind of the mysterious part about it that I've, I've really liked studying. I guess I don't have any other way to put it. It's a mystery. And so I like to find new discoveries along the way. And so I think back to my own discovery process and there were clearly times where I was attuned and my attention was drawn to something I didn't necessarily know why and I followed it and you know call that intuitive or call it mystical but it definitely seems to me that there were touchstones along the way and so people who are sensitive are definitely feeling those synchronistic times a lot more yes we all have synchronicities as you know humanity humans we experience synchronicity but sensitives appear to you know they describe synchronicities happening to them a lot more often and not knowing what it means and then following the path. And then there's also the way in which they perceive those things. And so I, I think that there is kind of that formula you can follow with sensitives to identify and the divine connection is part of it. And the reason why is not necessarily that they have a religion. It's because they've had an experience that they can't explain. And it kind of goes into the divine bucket. <laughs> You know, like in psychiatry, there's always that other bucket that we don't know. And well, if you're a sensitive person, things kind of go into the, oh, I can't really, I can't really label that. I don't know what that is. And so they say typically seek, seek to understand yes. what it is. And that's something that is also a trend with sensitivity. You'll be able to identify a sensitive person by those kinds of moments. 
I like that you say there's the other bucket. It's like, okay, <laughs> this just doesn't fit, but we'll keep it. It goes in a bucket, right? It cannot be defined. It goes beyond words. And he's usually sometimes, it can be transcendent, yeah. you know, but I think, it, I think if you wanted to try to quantify it, it would go into the basket where there's perception, right? Expanded perception and also feeling, deep feeling. So those combine in a way that feels magnificent. So bliss states, feeling that sublime connection, um, you know, revelatory moments that are, that appear transcendent or feel transcendent. So that's why I call it, I like kind of lump it into spirituality, but it doesn't have to be spiritual. It could just be a transcendence beyond what we experience as a normal mode. But it also at least and I've had a couple of those that like in the moment I'm thinking, okay, that was different. That was really different, but I never doubted that it was real. And that was like it wasn't like it didn't need examination. It it happened. It was real. But could I explain it and why that happened? No. You know, so um and, and you usually these, can't forget it, right? You um, usually no, don't forget it. Years ago. Right. You usually have a memory of it that kind of it's an imprint in a way of this so magical good. thing that happened. And so I, I lump that into sensitivity because okay. from everything I've studied, I believe that that is sensitivity and we just don't understand it fully yet. So our folks, um, because I'm taking the word literally sensitivity and your descriptions as well as the science behind it. But I'm also thinking about how we are bombarded with so much more right now. I mean, you bring up COVID and you know, the pressures of COVID. And so we get this constant news about that. Then the updates, then here's the next pending disaster. And we've got everything happening on the world stage, which is devastating. Yeah. And, um, and, this, and then constant like barrage and social media, blah, blah, blah. It goes on and on, um, inboxes, all of these things. So how are sensitives to handle that in a way that most benefits <clears throat> them? Well, it's crippling. It's crippling. I mean, I think the thing that, dis that that's distinctive about sensitives is they can't take as much of that, but they pr they push themselves to to stick with everybody else and kind of the crowd of what everybody else is doing. And they the, the distinctive thing about it is that they can't take as much of it or as long. And so the way that it, the thing that's interesting is then people say, well, just stop, right? Just stop doing it, do a detoxification. And that the reality is, yes, those things are good because they can help us reset, help our nervous system. And those all those prescriptions are all out there and they're all valid. But the interesting thing about sensitives kind of holding up, right? Or doing what we all did through the pandemic and isolating ourselves away from culture, away from society is that we actually become, studies show, we become more sensitive when we isolate or when we shut down or where we put ourselves in those spaces where we're not interacting. And so I encourage people to figure out where their threshold is, like we talked about, you know, where your sensory threshold is, where you feel like you're maxed out, and then sometimes kind of push it a little bit. And this is what I call resilience. So it's resilience in a different way. It's being able to attune to an environment and know when you've hit your sensory limit and when you need to kind of back off. And then you'll be able to do more, actually. it's You'll have more longevity, but in the near term, it can be 
not harmful to completely remove yourself from those environments, but you won't be building the resiliency you need to be a productive member of society in the long term or to help yourself with therapeutic things. So I know that that's kind of counterintuitive to what you might hear if you talked with another health coach, but my feeling is sensitive people a lot of times do shut down through overwhelm and then they don't reemerge back into their life. And so that that's a point where it would be great to have coaching because you can help with a coach to help people understand, look, you're not having a breakdown, you're sensitive and it does help people. And so coaching does work. And so I encourage people to figure out what their threshold is for number one, to expose themselves to different environments and figure out how much they can take before they feel that overwhelm and then push it a little bit. There was a study done in Japan where they took Japanese students that were sensitive but also had depression. So it was an overlapping clinical diagnosis. And then they had them exercise routinely with other individuals and they were able to be more resilient in different environments, just using exercise with others. And so there are ways to do it, but you have to find your way because everybody's different. So that was a long answer, but that's no, that was a perfect what I answer. Do. No, that was perfect. And I love that, you know, like sometimes people think, well, I, if I don't want to be in the noisy environment, I just have to be more noisy. But like the example of the Japanese study, you can be with people, but in an environment that's beneficial to you. Right. And they become less the focus. Right. Right. And so you build your ability to be able to discern in that environment, what you feel is uh, annoying, right? Sensorily, but then also build the reserves to be able to cope while you're doing it in a safe way. Yeah, I love that. And you're right, everybody's different, and we have to give ourselves a little bit of grace. Give ourselves so grace. It's an experiment. Let's see how it goes. I've learned what my thresholds are, and then I've just looked. Here's my coping mechanism. And I do remember early on in the pandemic, like when we really were in lockdown, lockdown, um, yeah. people were, oh, I can't stand not seeing people. I'm thinking, Okay, first of all, I'm an introvert. I'm yes. okay with it. <laughs> yeah. You I'm learn okay you learn that. You're like, okay, well, what what's all the, you know, the fuss about? Um, but, but I, I did really miss being able to see and touch people. That was yes. because I'm very tactile. Yes. Right. So um anyway, that was um it was interesting, but the but you're right, it's so easy to be a hermit. It's like, okay, I could live my life on my screen and walking my dog and maybe talking with my husband. Right. So like you can't you can't keep shutting down or your world gets really narrow. Right. And so you it, it really begs the question of well what is uh what what is a high quality life experience and and how do I determine that? And so like once again it is up to everybody. Yeah. To to determine well, what do I need? And you figured it out, you know, because you're self-effacing and you're self-aware and you're asking yourself those questions. Well, what do I need? And you're kind of, you're figuring it out along the way. Well, I get to I'm, talk to really smart people like you, right? <laughs> so I'm not stupid. I get that. I, I do. I love to learn, but I also know that my podcast guests, they're not just for my audience. They're for me too. I'm learning every time I talk to somebody. But I refuse to let my world get smaller just because our external circumstances are smaller. You won't be satisfied with it either eventually in the long term. You will thirst, you will crave, you'll feel hungry for that human connection to, to vibe with and to, um, to be inspired by others and to be drawn in because we as a society are relational. Yep. 
So I always um, encourage sensitive people to, to forge those connections because they make our life richer. But I also go into all the wonderful things that are great for sensitives, like aromatherapy, touch therapy, you know, movement therapies. There are so many different types of mind-body uh, therapies to help sensitive people, but they're not, we don't get access to them through our clinical provider. So that's the other thing in the message in my book is that it's an inside job. You can go to massage therapists, you can go to yoga therapists, you can go to people for, you know, rolfing and, and, you know, musculature stuff and fascia, but it really is you determining this stuff. And so it's important. That's the other message, which can kind of feel like tough love, but you got to do it. That's the other thing that I coach on is like you, you have to figure it out for yourself for the long term. I can't do it for you. That's not always what folks want to hear. No, <laughs> that's why it's the tough love. You know, we want to go and get the answers for somebody and, and then have them say, um, yes, I can take your pain away. Now for sensitives, they experience more pain. They do. And so we have to figure out where our pain thresholds is. So that's the other motivator, which is also tough love, is that we either seek typically as humans pain or pleasure or we approach or we withdraw. I mean, it kind of comes down to these more simplistic ideas, but they're not when you get into the nuances of feeling pain or feeling suffering or feeling joy. And it, it's this uh, it's this uh, multi-layer wave that's happening all the time internally. And so sensitives, if they don't take care of themselves, they'll experience more pain. And so they're, they're typically motivated to get out of it, you know, more often. Sticker in your foot, take it out. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I want to ask just as a pivot, just sure. a heads up pivot. You yep. know, one of the things I asked you um, before we even had you, you know, schedule and come on as a guest is if there was something our listeners would be surprised to learn about you. Do you remember what you shared? <sighs> Well, I did that a while ago. I know. Let me give you a clue. It has to do with a brownstone. Oh my gosh. The brownstone. Yeah. That I I did not share that for a long time. That was kind of my secret. Well, will you but share I, it now? Yeah, sure I will. Well, when I was it kind of comes full circle because when I was working at that medical center as a provider, as a cl clinical provider while also doing the housing. You know, that was a very traumatic job, you know, but I didn't realize it. But I what I learned through that, which I haven't ever shared with anybody, but I'm going to share with it now because I, I think it is enlightening in a way. When when clinical providers or healthcare people are put into the um, that pressure point, really into the vice, all the sensory experiences get peaked, really, because you're in a state of fight or flight, essentially all the time. If you're not wired differently like an er nurse or somebody who's really not as affected as somebody who is a sensitive like myself would be without knowing i'm just gonna put that caveat in there um i think that my sensory expansion was peaked all the time because i was probably in fight or flight a lot of the time but didn't recognize it and i was also feeling a lot of what my patients were feeling without recognizing it either as an empath with that being said, there was a, I had two friends in Seattle that were moving. They were gonna to move to New York City. And so one friend, she worked on, uh, she lived on one side of the town and then the, my other friend was in lived in my neighborhood. So she asked me to pick her and her boys up and go to our other friend's apartment on a Saturday night and move her bed 
move her bed out of her apartment so they could move in together, save money and move to New York. So I said, sure. Okay. I have a truck. Okay. I have a truck in the city. Not that many people do. And so if you oh, have a truck in the city, let me tell you, even if it's a short bed truck, people will call you and ask you to move their stuff. Oh, you're a so, popular gal with a truck. Yeah. Yeah, I was. So, and I knew, and I was mechanical, so I could take things apart. I had my own tools, all those kind of things created like the perfect storm to move the bed. <laughs> so anyway, I agree. I show up, I pick my friend up and her two boys on the street on the curb. And we head over to the other side of town. And I, I started to have feelings like a nausea, not to move the bed. Now I never went up into her apartment. I picked her and her boys up on the street. So it was a foreign feeling and it was a sickening feeling like an unease that felt completely out of the blue. I mean, there was no continuity for it. And so I noticed it, obviously, but I kept driving because I was on point to get the bed and take it all apart. And I just I kept driving, but I kept feeling this alertness, alertedness. And I even heard the words, don't move the bed. That kind of came up in my mind a couple of times with an authoritarian, I mean, it was my voice, I guess, but it still had a, a seriousness to it. Right. So that was very weird, very weird. And so we get to our friend's apartment. She got off work at eight. We're waiting for her to buzz us up. And I say to my friend, I feel like we need to go back to your place right now. I mean, I, I verbalize my unease and she says, I'm sorry, we pushed this on you, you know, I'm sure you're just feeling, you know, inconvenienced. And I'm like, you know, like the logical side of myself is listening to this going, yeah, yeah, okay, maybe I'm just, you know, upset, but I wasn't upset. It was bizarre. So we go up, I get the bed taken apart. I got the pieces together, the little pieces to keep everything straight. And I drop it. I, I literally drop the frame on the ground and say to my other friend, we need to leave right now. And she said, oh, totally, will tomorrow work? And I was like, yeah. So we get back in the truck. My friend thinks I'm crazy. Her boys are like, you know, sitting at attention because something's, you know, we've reversed track. We get back to her apartment and there's smoke. There's smoke in the at second her apartment. Yeah. At the second layer of the, the second floor, we go up and there's like a thin layer of smoke and it smells sweet, like a sweet smoke. So I said to her, were you cooking cookies? You know, were you baking cookies and you forgot you left them in the oven? And she said, no. And she's fishing for her keys in her purse now and we're all freaked out because there's smoke in the hall. She opens the door and there's a river of wax on the floor oh. as we enter the door. It's like a red hardened stream of yeah. wax that went all the way from the other side of the part of uh, the studio apartment, the window all the way in front of the door. I don't know how many feet it was, but we stepped in. The boys are freaking out. I step into the kitchen because I'm like, what was that? I mean, I have no idea, but I'm relieved that we find the, the, the candle was burning. She goes to the candle. I'm in the kitchen and the boys start screaming. They start literally screaming and I'm like, calm, calm, you know, it's okay. The apartment building is very small. Everybody hears us, right? And so I'm like, it's all right, we made it in time. And my friend Rebecca was like, no, look. And she's like stunned, silent, pointing. I mean, we were reverted to gestures, right? <laughs> so she's, she's pointing and I, I come over and I look and I see that there is a black singe mark, not on the candle, but above the candle, there's a bamboo light shade. 
Oh no. And it's smoking and it's expanding. The black singe mark is expanding and there's smoke rolling off of the bamboo light shade. And so I realized that we got there just in the nick of time and all the smoke that had filled up the building was from, you know, this smoke getting ready to, you know, it's ready to burn. And so I, that's what transformed me. I mean, it took me a while to, I mean, I went home. I was stunned speechless as well for a while. I didn't tell anybody for years. I didn't tell anybody. I mean, it was just kind of us girls that knew what happened. Um, So yeah, that's a surprising thing that people don't know about me. And I've started to share it now finally, because people have asked, well, why did I write the book? Well, after that happened, something inside of me changed. And I said to myself, I'm going to figure out what this is. Yeah, pay attention. And I also started to communicate a little bit to other people what was going on, and they didn't have the same experiences, clearly. And so I started to investigate would be the best way. Yeah. What is what is this? You know, what what it, what is it? Was it intuitive? Was it psychic? So that's what led me to write the four gifts of the highly sensitive, because I really didn't find what I was looking for. It took me a long time to piece it all together. Thank you for sharing. I feel really privileged and I'm I'm glad I asked you. Yeah, well, I'm glad you reminded me. I'm thinking, was it that I played college sports in college? And then- <laughs> Interesting, but not surprising. I would, yeah, I, you know, here I'm looking at you, I'm thinking, nah, I figure anything that has like requires mental acuity, you can do it. Physical acuity, you got it. And then you tell me you got a truck. Eh, you could do that too. So no, this, I think there's somebody probably more than one somebody who needed to hear that specific story even more than about your book today. Um, Because my bet is someone has had many similar experiences and felt crazy or felt like, oh, I can't share this because I'm going to be ostracized or what will people think? So I just, I just thank you for sharing that. Well, I want to share a tie in. So I was at the sink this morning doing the dishes, (laughs) right? My favorite place to the think. The mundane, right? You 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 say to yourself, I'm going to get the dishes in and get it all done before I go to bed. But it just didn't happen last night because the night we had. But you asked me this morning what was coalescing for me. And it's interesting because as I was doing the dishes, as all often when we're relaxed or in the bathtub or in the shower or on our meditative walks, things occur to us. And what I was, what came into my mind was one of the things one of my teachers told me a long time ago. And she said, be careful which story you tell. Be careful whose story you tell. And it was a it was an important message that she wanted to relay to me at the time. And I always thought about that. And so I'm at the sink, right, doing the dishes, and I hear her in my mind say, Be careful whose story you tell. And in the context of which she gave me this teaching, it was we were learning about indigenous uh-huh. indigenous populations and their stories and how they teach in their communities stories about medicine and wisdom. And so maybe that came full circle maybe I needed to tell that part of my own story. And, I, and I'm sure you're right. I'm sure some individuals probably have had these experiences and maybe weren't able to communicate it. And so in those ways, I'm, I'm happy to share it because it was a transforming moment. It changed my life and it changed me. You know, I can look at that and draw a clear line and go, yeah, that, that was the day that I started saying, I'm going to pursue this openly. It's, it is funny. We have those defining moments. And even in the moment, we might not know the significance of the moment right away, but we know don't. that it happened. We typically don't. I mean, I think that's the phenomenal thing. We typically don't understand the significance of a small decision to turn around. 
and then you get there and then you understand, well, how did I know that? You don't know how you knew, but lives were saved in that situation. I'm pretty sure of it. I mean, and that's what Rebecca and I were so stunned into silence by that. We knew that it was a life-saving return. Oh my goodness, Courtney. I'm so happy that we got to spend this time together today. I really am. I feel very blessed and fortunate that you're number 200. Oh, um, me too. I'm going to be shouting that out from the mountaintop. Shout it out. Tell your friends. To come. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get you a little crown that says 200. 200. Queen. Yes. Yeah, I would love that. Um, <laughs> that's so funny. So what is the best way? Because I do want folks to know where you hang out most or the best way for them to reach you. If they want to work with you or learn more about you, where is that? Uh, it's at Inspired Potentials. Since people can't say or spell my name, <laughs> you know, they're not going to readily find me through an internet search. So I say Inspired Potentials because it's easy to say and spell and that's where I hang out. And I have you know, a website that has more information about everything that we've talked about and you can contact me i have a test i did develop a gifts test if people are curious about finding out if they're intuitive or empathic or a visionary or an expressive that i developed and so that's on there and then i do the test i analyze all the results and i send an email to the person and then i also leave my um contact information open if they want to ask questions about anything i always try to be really responsive and receptive to sensitive people that's great. I'm just, uh, I'm, I know a couple of people who will want to know about that site specifically for the test. Um, and I want to thank you for being a guest. I hope you will consider coming back to be a guest in the future. I'll ring you up when we hit 300. You can just be our, <laughs> you can be our zero, zero guest. Yeah, I'll be the, what is that? Well, it's not centenarian. It's the centennial. It's the, cent- no, I'll be the cent- Yeah. Is, is it always a centennial or is it no, a biennial? Oh, I triennial. Don't <laughs> I don't know. Once you start breaking it, and then I'm thinking, okay, is that every third or is that in thirds? Yeah, right? I know. Then you go into math mode. My weekly. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Well, anyway. I would love to come back. Thank you for the invitation. I feel very grateful and blessed as well. All right, and folks, remember you can claim Courtney's episode if you get it, but you've got a two week window to play in the the randomized drawing for your favorite podcast episode and why. So we hope you'll join in. Courtney, thank you so, so much for being on the show today. Thank you. And we'll see everybody else next week. You've been listening to the No Labels, No Limits podcast with best-selling author, change agent, and strategic vision coach, Sarah Box. You can grab the show notes and find out how to work with Sarah at sarahbox.com forward slash no labels, no limits podcast. We'd love this podcast to reach as many people as possible. So please remember to rate, leave a five-star review and share the podcast with someone you think would get value from this conversation. Until next time, keep taking those daily action steps to align your purpose to your principles and achieve your goals in business and life.